Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe. Today, I am super excited about our guest. We have a very special guest. He's a good friend of mine, Brett Bartholomew. Brett, how are you doing today, Coach? I'm doing awesome, Don. How are you? I'm doing Big great. Don. <laughs> we have got uh, Brett in the, in the studio today, and he is in town uh, speaking at our clinic. Coach, thank you for coming in. It's always a pleasure. Um, want to talk about you just a minute. I know a lot of your followers may know who you are, but if you have never met or listened to or followed Brett Bartholomew, he is a guy that you need to make sure you pay attention to. Uh, Brett is not only a keynote speaker, he is a performance coach and consulting and a best-selling author. His book, uh, Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-In, is a number one bestseller in sports coaching on Amazon and a number one bestseller in business, excuse me, number eight bestseller in business and leadership in Amazon and a top 100 uh, bestseller on Amazon. So if you've not read his book, you'll need to get it. Coach, we're excited uh, you're on the show. Brett has also worked with a diverse range of athletes across 23 sports worldwide at all levels, ranging from youth to athletes to Olympians. Uh, he's worked with numerous Super Bowl and World Series champions and other uh, professional fighters in, in boxing and the UFC. Coach, how are you doing? What's going on in your life lately? A baby, uh, the clinic, right? So if I'm a little bit hoarse, that's because we just went on uh, – <laughs> <laughs> we did a 90-minute talk and then some Q&A and what have you. Uh, but, yeah, I would say baby business course and getting ready to start coaching back up here again in February. So, wide variety. Coach, how has the uh, the whole dad life, how's that treating you these days? I mean, right now, as of while we're recording this, I'm only four weeks in. He's a four-week-old little guy. His name's Bronson. 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 Yep. yep, not named after Missouri. I'd be in trouble. For, <laughs> <laughs> but Bronson, yeah. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, people tend to ask that question a lot and for good reason because being a father can change your life. But th- the reality, my wife and I kind of feel bad saying this the main stress has just been adapting to the work side of it, mm-hmm. right? Especially somebody that owns their own business, trying to figure out, okay, now I've got even more clearly defined value or boundaries and what have you. So I think what he has done, what Bronson has done, is amplified my focus on refining things that I already knew to be blind spots, which for me were, I, you know, I say yes to everything. I always try to help as, as many folks as I can. Uh, and sometimes I'm not as good with my time management as I should be. Mm -hmm. And so he just continues to make you redefine what is a priority, what's the need for the now, and what do you need to do as opposed to what would be nice to do. So I think that, but other than that, I mean, four weeks in, right now we're just trying to keep the little guy alive and enjoy every moment with him. Coach, I mean, I tell you, uh, I'm a dad as well. We have my wife and I have four daughters, and I remember our first uh, daughter, Isabel, when she was born, you look actually very, you look amazing. I mean, when, when my first daughter came, I was so sleep deprived. Oh, I'm there. Trust You're me. You're there. You're just kind of faking it. I hide it with my beard. You hide, okay. You know, the lines in the face are obscured. You're by not the crushing beard. monsters and no, Red Bulls. No, okay, no, you right, take no. good care of yourself. No. All right. Well, congratulations Thank on you. Um, Bronson, and, Bronson. And, your be- and your beautiful wife. And I know that's uh, got to be a joy and delight. You've got to meet my wife at some point. I know. I'm going to have to get out there and, uh, and, and say For hello. those of you listening, you don't know this, but the last time Coach Mabe came out to my neck of the woods, I got big-timed. <laughs> 
he made no time. I said, hey, you know, you're not that far from us. Why don't you come up? Why don't you train the garage gym? And he said, you know, coach, uh, sorry, just not on my agenda and flew right on out of there. And that's an example of why you don't post on social media. <laughs> but uh, cool. Coach, I know we know you well. We love you. Uh, maybe there's some people that don't know your story. Just to provide context as we get into the, the show today, can you take a moment and just kind of go back and introduce yourself, kind of own your career? How did you get in this profession? Uh, share your journey a little bit, how it's led to where you are and what you're doing right now. Sure. I'll try to do that without boring everybody because a lot of how I got into it is detailed in my book. And that was a lot. That was probably the hardest chapter of the book to write. So, guys, I'll, I'll keep it short here. Bottom line is you know, I grew up Omaha, Nebraska. I was a competitive athlete myself, primarily in baseball and football at that age. And, you know, I'd always loved training ever since the time I saw my first Rocky movie. And, you know, you read your dad's men's health magazine. And, you know, so I would do whatever I could from really at that standpoint early on. It's, it's mainly just bodybuilding, right? You're doing whatever those magazines tell you to do. And, uh, you know, I ended up going to a high school. Uh, my parents split up. They got a divorce. We moved to a different area of town and trained three times a day. And I wasn't fueling appropriately. At that time, I was getting my advice. Again, I'm 14 years old. It's not like I know how to go to PubMed. And there's not as many digital resources now as there are for people that want to be advised on, on these things. So I'm learning from muscle magazines, right, that say eat low carb, eat low fat. So like any absolutist, I did both. So you can imagine somebody that's training like a mad person and barely eating any calories. I mean, I was basically yeah. eating egg beaters, fat-free craft singles, and turkey bacon for breakfast because I'm just trying to eat as clean as possible or what they deemed clean at the time through pop media. And long story short, Donnie, I was hospitalized. I was put in an inpatient eating disorder hospital oh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota for a year of my life. Um, the reason for that is I was running around the um, school one day and blacked out. And I woke up and I was in a doctor's office and I was told that my heart, kidney and liver were all experiencing some level of failure or extreme weakness. So uh, I had to be put into a cardiac arrest ward within that, uh, that eating disorder hospital. They chose that because they felt like, hey, this is the place that's going to get the weight back on them. And truth be told, at that point, I mean, that is classified. It was technically anorexia NOS, so not otherwise specified. So it wasn't me not trying to eat to try to get thin or binging and purging, which are classic eating disorder type things. A lot of it was a manifestation of just OCD, depression. Those things were my outlet. So I was put in a hospital where, you know, 5.30 in the morning, you are weighed in a nightgown every day. Your blood is drawn every day. You have very restricted privileges. Uh, the room that we're in now, which for those of you that can't see this, which is all of you, um, imagine just a, kind of like a smaller living room or a den. And you're put into an observation room the majority of the day when you're not eating hospital-approved meals where you're under constant surveillance and observation. <laughs> they want to make sure that you're not fidgeting. They want to make sure that you're not doing anything to basically burn calories through non-exercise thermogenesis. And by they, I'm talking about licensed medical practitioners, doctors, nurses, psychiatrists, psychiatrists. I mean, this is a ward that in totality helps people. Right. Uh, very rarely did they focus on the person. You're kind of a symptom coach, Mabe. And so you're starting to hopefully key in on some key things that have influenced me as I started to get into coaching where, uh, guys, frankly, some people lost their lives as a result of this treatment. People weren't able to reach them, even though they were subject matter experts. So, you know, long story short, after I did get out of the, the hospital, and that's detailed in my book, I knew that I wanted to learn everything I could about rebuilding the human body in the appropriate way. 
because the hospital was a really toxic experience. It really didn't help that much. Um, so got into strength and conditioning, went to Kansas State for kinesiology, boxed competitively, started training other fighters in exchange for my training, got, my, uh, got an internship at Athletes Performance, went back to the University of Nebraska to volunteer because I wanted team setting experience. That led to a master's or a graduate assistantship at Southern Illinois University. SIU. SIU, yep, where I was in charge of about six to seven, eight sports total by the end of it, and then assisted with basketball and football. Uh, My master's degree is in motor learning, specifically in attentional focus and cueing, which is, you know, again, what got me more and more interested in the impact of communication and the science behind coaching strategy. And uh, yeah, then went and worked for the pro sports side of athletes' performance for six years with special forces, military, major minor league baseball, NFL, everything that you read off earlier, and a couple other stops in between, and then started my own company, Art of Coaching, in 2017, and the rest was history. So I'm 33 going on about 84. (laughs) It's aged you. (laughs) That's the fastest I've ever tried to go through about, you know, 15, 16 some odd years of my life, so hopefully I didn't put anybody to sleep. No, that's, uh, that's impressive, Coach. You've definitely... You know, the thing that I definitely admire and respect about you is that you've been across all kind of different uh, avenues of sports performance. Um, You've, you know, obviously we're working in the college right now, the collegiate. You've worked in the collegiate. You've you've been in the private. You've been in the pro. Um, Looking over your your resume and career, um, what did you like? What was there different aspects? Did you like college? What did you like about college? What do you like about the, the private now? Kind of speak to that a little bit. Yeah, one, I think that having experienced a lot of different things, first of all, I think it's a huge misnomer that these are all wildly different from one another. There are far more similarities than there are differences. Uh, you know, I and there were a lot of things that, <laughs> excuse me, I didn't believe. So when I when I had first transitioned into the private sector, it wasn't because I didn't like college. It was because I remember applying for two jobs. Um, one had already been filled by the time I was uh, leaving my GA. They just kind of did that whole HR thing where they posted it, even though it was filled. And another one I made it to the final rounds for. And then I think that head strength coach got fired. Mm-hmm. So then everybody got, you know, and I needed a job. And so there was a great opportunity at Athletes Performance, who was doing some really innovative things at the time. And there were a lot of coaches that worked there that had been in the team setting. And they specialize in a lot of movement oriented principles. And I also knew that I'd, I'd get a wide range of being able to work with military, youth. I mean, I just wanted to make myself a weapon early. Like I wanted to get as many different varied experiences as I could as a coach. So I didn't have a ton of biases or so at the very least I could challenge those biases. Uh, But, you know, I remember people tell me, oh, when you go to the private sector, it's just personal training. You won't do this. I mean, coach six to eight groups a day, larger groups, you know, like I ran at one point in time, an NFL program in Phoenix that oftentimes it was me and one intern with 30 to 50 people, you know, and I just think that people have to be careful with what they're telling coaches out there today, because they make it sound like we're all completely different, right? Private sector team pro. It's like, these things are going to be only, it's just like our differences with people. You're only going to find as many differences as you willingly go and seek out. Now, of course, everybody's going to deal with different variations of red tape. And if you own a facility, you're going to have overhead that's expansive. And, you know, if you work in a university, you may not have to deal with that. You may have some relative security, but you also, if you don't win a national title in a couple of years, might be out of there. Yeah, or, the pressure. Yeah, yeah, or you can't be as public with some of the things that you'd like to do, right, if you want to help other people because there's red tape. Uh, I just think that people have to be open to saying, like, you'd never tell your athletes to specialize early in their career, 
I, I don't understand why coaches want to do the same. I, I don't think those – I've loved them all. Um, we, we're in the private sector right now. That being said, I work a lot with a variety of teams throughout the year, both in consulting and just partnerships. And uh, we've had opportunities to go back to the team setting. And it just hasn't been the right fit for us. It has to be the right fit. No, I know. You made me think <laughs> of the, the book David Epstein uh, just came out with Range. And uh, I don't know if you read it yet, but he talks about in that book about focus on one area, whether you're a doctor, a business person, a coach, whatever, that specializing in one thing actually kind of uh, it limits your creativity and your ability to find solutions to answers. Because at the end of the day, I mean, whether you're in a private facility, college, pro, whatever, I mean, we all have problems. Mm -hmm. We all have a certain limited number of resources. We have authority structures in place that we all have to report through and work through to be successful. And so, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree that you definitely want a broad range experience. And coaching is well social in yeah. nature. And so who, who right now isn't dealing with some level of miscommunication or lack of buy-in or some other kind of asymmetry uh, within you know their environment. I don't think there's any coaches out there that have it all figured out. And if they do, that doesn't last long. And sadly, it's tough for me to think that we needed somebody like David Epstein to write a book like that, that now so many coaches quote when inherently they knew this to begin with, right? It's something that we all espouse. But that's another issue kind of within our field is we're more likely to listen to outside authorities than we are to like listen to each other and really be open about certain things and struggles and strategies. And, and that's got to change long term. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, just going back when I was listening to your um, kind of your, your resume and your career journey, you worked with a lot of sports. What, did you ever, did any of the sport coaches, did you learn anything from them, have any influence from them, any any sports in particular maybe that, you know, whether it was basketball or track or anybody that kind sure. of... Sure, yeah, I mean, you, you learn from all all sorts of folks. I remember somebody that taught me uh, a fair amount of ineptitude that I had at the time was a uh, the golf coach at Southern Illinois at the time. I believe his name was Leroy, but don't quote me on that. It's been a while. But I remember he had come down. He had come down one time to the weight room and said, "I don't want my golfers doing any of them football lifts." And I said, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And you know, of course, he started talking about cleans and squats and snatches and deadlifts, multi joint movements. That because of their the fact that some football players do those things, that they're perceived to be football lifts, right? He starts telling me that he wants them to do step ups and they want to run two miles several times a week and a wide variety and. At the time, you know, I probably didn't have the social intelligence that I would have liked to have said that I had. And I did what a lot of strength coaches do is, you know, I was like, coach, you understand how these movements, you know, whether they're deadlifts or cleans or what have you, can actually improve golf performance. And of course, I drum up a bunch of research on rate of force development and driving distance and how it can enhance, you know, physiological yeah, outputs. Right. I thought, yeah. and I go up there and he goes, son, you think I'm going to read these and takes them and throws them right in the trash right in front of me. And I'm sitting here. And I leave that office thinking he's the problem, you know, when I realize later on, like, that was my approach was trash. And that's actually why I, I don't really like when people espouse that whole start with why. I think that's well-intentioned, but it doesn't matter if you have the right why if you don't understand how to navigate the what and the how. Because how we—and so um, I always tell people, like, that's fine if you want to start with why— but then make sure that you really look, take a look at deep diving the how. Um, so, you know, that just taught me, like, know your audience. That was the, that was that, you know, because there were other times where I was able to bring him down and show him exactly what 
he really wanted to see, let's say we were doing some rotary aspects, med ball or Kaiser or what have you. And I'd strategically plan it out so he came down and saw that, and then he loved it and would let me do whatever he wanted in the weight room. Yeah, that's so, good. good talk. We'll get, <laughs> I know it we'll sounds get, manipulative. But. Yeah, we'll get – no, I got a question for you later on. Hopefully we'll get to it. But um, So kind of part of this show is just the team behind the team. In today's landscape in athletics, specifically college, I'm sure you see it in pro and private, um, there's a shift towards this team-based performance model. How would you describe a team-based performance model? What would be your words, and what are the what are the positives of that or challenges? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this was stuff that was inculcated in me at early days of athletes' performance. A team-based model, whether private, pro, or anything, is just something that is seamlessly integrated, where you have no walls, metaphorical or literal, between what different departments are doing so that there's transparent communication. It's hard to be a part of a team if everybody's really scared to share their thoughts or ideas because of criticism and, and all of those. Or repercussion aspects. or something. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there, there's some inherent politics and power dynamics in every organization. I think, again, the mistake that most people in sport and in sports performance in general make is that our field is somehow unique. Almost every profession has some level of integration that they have to manage and navigate. And I just think that what we have to deal with is everybody feels like there's so much on the line with athlete, player, health, wellness, safety, their own jobs, all that, that it makes people button up. And so we oftentimes pay homage to a team-based approach or not being siloed. And in reality, a lot of it has been lip service. People aren't doing as much of it as they should in the way that they should. So I think it's just transparency, not being afraid to be wrong, not being afraid to give ground to gain ground, and understanding that like you know it's it's a level of complexity. It's not about one person or one department's agenda. It's about how it's all got to fit into really set the athlete and the individuals that we're meant to serve up for success. Yeah, that's good. I like I like the way you said that right there. I think. You made me think about when I was in Australia about a little over a year ago, and I've shared this before, but just seeing there, I think we're at the the New South Wales Institute of Sport, and just sh- kind of showing where all their performance team kind of where they where they office. They really didn't have their own offices; they were this big open space, so they'd be collaborative, and there'd be more. Because I think I think to to build um, Simon Sinek talks about that in Leaders Eat Last about he was talk he uses the government as an analogy that I forget what year it was all the government officials moved out of DC. Mm. So proximity wise they weren't they weren't having lunch together. They weren't just having small talk. So the only time they would come together would be to to make these votes and, and decisions on these laws. And so there would be a lot of conflict. But they didn't have that relational rapport and built some trust there on the front end so that you could have those tough right. conversations. Yeah. And so I think, you know, looking at the the performance model today, I think there's going to be a shift at some point towards being more integrated and not being, like you said, siloed. Because I think that's a real issue sometimes is being in your little silo, there's not communication. Yeah, without a doubt. Slip service, like you said. Right. And the issue that compounds that, though, Coach Mabe, is that we can have the perfect org chart and walls down and proximity and all that. But also, if we don't encourage coaches to become more skilled communicators, that's not really going to matter. Like an org chart long-term isn't going to solve issues in in performance. A lot of that is ego, insecurity, communication, and understanding how to truly bridge gaps and negotiate and find common ground. And as we talked about today, right now I think there's 285 coach development programs out there and less than 6% focus on interpersonal skills. That's a big part of what we're trying to do with Art of Coaching. Well, you go back to, you know, the thing I've, as I've gotten older, not only as a coach, but as a, 
as a husband and as a father, the level and the and the power of communication. One of my favorite quotes is by Ed Cole. It goes like this: "Where communication is cut off, abnormality sets in." It's a great one. And so when you don't, if you you can communicate, but if people are not hearing you, if there's not a connection, you're really not communicating, right? Yeah, I mean, to build off that, one of our kind of company log lines is more successful interventions are the result of more successful interactions. It's the same thing. Like, no matter what you're trying to accomplish, show me one thing that doesn't require some level of listening and or communication. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I think as I've gotten, like I said, gotten older in my career that I've learned, I just, if I can just be a better communicator, you're more effective. Yeah. It doesn't take as long. Especially in your marriage. Amen. That's right. That's right. You got to be a good communicator. There's right. different ways. You got to learn that love language. Trying. For sure. Uh, shift gears just a little bit. If we were to come to watch you train some of your athletes during one of your sessions, this is a Coach Brett's session. What would we see? Give us kind of paint us a picture with your words, and what would we see? Yeah, I think that. So I'll paint you a picture. Literally, a picture that I have in my office is of Frank Sinatra leading the Count Basie Orchestra in his uh, favorite hotel wearing a baseball cap and a really casual shirt. And people always wonder why I have that photo. Like, what is this indicative of? But let me ask you real quick. When you think of Frank Sinatra, how do you, how is he typically dressed? Uh, Tuxedo, slick back hair, just looks Very suave. Yeah, looks sharp. Well, that picture is indicative of really, and there was only, I think, 400 of them made in the world, is that the world's best never try to make themselves look like something that they don't need to be, right? Like you can, if you're really great at something, it should almost look casual and boring. And that has always been something that I've, I've always looked at is I think that, I think the best performers, nothing looks, uh, oh, sorry, the best coaches, the best, like it shouldn't look crazy. There shouldn't be any awe-inspiring tactics. Yeah. You should almost be a little bit bored. Because it's in the unseen where the great things are happening. So if you came and watched me, listen, you're going to see similar things you see with many coaches in terms of soft tissue modalities, a a relatively thorough warm-up. We're going to see exercises and drills that excite the neuromuscular system and things that challenge all aspects of, you know, just strength development, all those. What I always tell people is watch the interactions. You know, when when I'd go watch people observe Dan Path. And they'd ask him, it was, it was almost wasted questions. They'd ask him about technology and what he thought about this rack versus that rack or whatever. And, you know, Dan, who wrote the forward for my book, would come over and be like, nobody asks about actual coaching anymore. And so he was one of the earliest supporters. So I think what I'd incur- what I think you'd see is you'd see strategic interaction that is patient and purposeful, um, even whether I'm using... A certain type of language, whether I'm gesturing, whether I'm not correcting an athlete, even if they're doing something wrong, even if I'm not correcting them at the moment, there's a reason why. I'll have people come shadow and they'll be like, well, you didn't do that. And, you know, on that bounding exercise, he didn't achieve extension. And I said, yo, that's his third rep. And it's his first week doing it. Like, I get it. So I would like to think what you would not see is a lot of overcoaching. What you would not see is a lot of dictatorial type of leadership. What you would not see is a bunch of needless novelty. So I almost answer, I know I answer that in a turned around way of here's what you would not see, but hopefully that also gives you a clear idea of what you would see. That's good. I I think, um, you know, when you look at training, who would you say over, again, over your career, who's had some, some big influence in maybe your philosophy or just even your approach to how you think? In terms of systems, are you talking about an athlete that I worked with that challenged me uh, thinking about these things, or an in, like a coach? Yeah, I think more. Um, I think more just uh, who who's kind of 
you know, who's kind of had that that voice over the years when you when you sit down to write a, a workout or your thought process is to address key objectives with yeah, athletes, I would, who's influenced you the most, you think? Or? I would say it's an amalgamation. I mean, listen, I've never I'll be honest, I've never had a true mentor that was with me every point in my career that influenced me. And I, I used to be really bitter about that. And now I actually think it was a strength because I, I, there were so many influences, right? There was, uh, who I learned under Jared Nestland at, uh, Southern Illinois was ruthless at making us defend our programs. And he would make you get detail every single thing you had to defend as if you were a court of, in a court of law. And I loved that. I really appreciated that about him. Some people thought that that was kind of hard nose and whatever. I thought that was great. The Just growing up in Nebraska, you grew up in the shadow of, of a mecca of strength and conditioning. So just good old-fashioned Husker power principles of multi-joint movements, right? Multi-planar, multi-joint movements and, and no-nonsense training. And then, of course, my time at Athletes Performance with, with Mark Verstegen. I mean, people have a dramatic misunderstanding of of what a lot of that I mean before him and people like Vern Gambetta who also was an influence in terms of how I look at movement there was really not a whole lot of folks out there that were taking the same attention to detail that you saw in track and linear speed or acceleration and applying that to multi-directional movement and you know API back in the day now people would know it as Exos but to me they're very different companies Athletes' performance was an environment where coaches would openly challenge each other and be like, hey, you thought that was a good session? You can do better. What are five things you need to improve on? And it was all came from a good place, but it was competitive in a healthy way. So I'd say, you know, just from the roots of where I grew up, uh, the the graduate assistant situations that I was in, and then, of course, uh, the, the athlete's performance. And then there was one gentleman, Victor Hall, and, and Dan Paff and Stu McMillan were three people that when I really started talking more about psychosocial aspects – when everybody else thought I was crazy, because all I used to talk about was periodization and agility and all those things, they encouraged me to keep going. So those three deserve special recognition for jumping on early board, and Dan was huge. No, and I, lo- I love—thanks for sharing all that. I think it's so critical for—if you walk in and you, you look at a coach and you look at him training and working with a team, you've got to know the background of that coach <laughs> and how they were raised, hardships they went through— uh, their family that they were part of, the different coaches they were under, the um, adversity, dark seasons maybe they went through, things that had a big impact on them, things that didn't. Because that goes into part of who you are and who I am. And I think that's always uh, – it's kind of like that old country saying, man, when you when you drink out of a water hose, you, you're going to get a little taste of the hose. No right. matter who – the water's going to be great, but there's going to be a little taste of the hose in there. Everybody's different, right? Yeah, and one to that point exactly, one conflict I had early on in my career is there was an athletic trainer that didn't really care for the way that I coach because I'm pretty intense, uh, depending on the context or what have you. And, you know, she had said that. She goes, I just don't understand why you coach, why everything is always so loud and intense and what have you. And I was probably maybe 25 at the time. And uh, I realized that she had no idea of my background of that, you know, again, at – 15 years old, I was hospitalized for a year of my life, nearly died. And when I got out of there, it was inculcated in me pretty clearly that you don't have long on this planet. Uh, I had family that died really young. My dad lost his dad, my grandfather, when my dad was only 12. Uh, My grandmother suffered a major heart attack. I've had family members die of cancer. So it's urgency has always been in me. And this idea that I'm probably not, you know, I don't know how long I'll be here. And I'm grateful to be here in general from coming out of that hospitalization. So yeah, I coach intensely. 
And I don't do it to try to garner attention. I don't try to do it to assert dominance. I try to do it because at the end of the day, training to me is nothing more than a tool to teach other people what they're capable of. And you don't have many opportunities to teach them that lesson in impactful ways. So we don't have time to waste. So that was an example of, uh, you know, a lot of times that would kind of turn, not a lot of times, but in that circumstance, it turned a, a colleague off to my uh, approach because she didn't know she hadn't drank from that hose. Yeah, that's true. Um, talking about training a little bit more, you know, technology is just on the rise and it seems like every other week you turn around and there's some new gadget or, you know, device that can capture data in training. Do you use any technology? And then kind of what are your thoughts on some of the technology just being used in training today? Yeah, I use what I can. Now, what I've determined to use now is based on, you know, experience that I had had when, you know, at API and what have you, we would always have people coming in and trying to hawk the latest and greatest just because they want to get those things in with partnerships, right? Just like they do with teams and what have you. So I've been exposed to a wide range of technology. Some, you know, is great and you get onto it for a while and other things you're kind of, you start to differentiate nice to have, need to have, and especially depending on your budget. So I want to, I have to make it very clear. Any technology I use now is 100% out of my own pocket and I own a self-funded business, right? So, um, I think of course, if you have the budget, it's great to use things like force plates with relevant software that tells you what that data means. It's great if you use things like the Nord board and the groin bar. I've used both of those in the past. It's great if you use things that measure velocity, whatever, you know, like there's a million of those. What I use now when I'm self-funding it and to keep it simple and I coach remotely and have to adapt is I'll use a good old fashioned jump mat. I'll use a good old, I'll use a good old, I still bring out uh, the industrial tape measure to look at everything from broad jump to lateral bounce to lateral, you know, like a single triple hop test, things like that. We will use during certain phases of the off season, like a tendo unit to get an idea of where the neuromuscular system's at. I've used something as simple as a hand grip dynamometer. I mean, yeah, when I, when I've been uh, abroad and, and, relatively like, uh, you know, situations where you don't have access to much. If you give me a hand grip dynamometer and a jump mat, and then you know what, just data that you've collected through the strength programs and the phases, you should be able to tell a good bit. Now, of course, we also make, you're, we're not talking about assessments as a whole, you're staying on technology, but I will use uh, like uh, just easy to sign things that are sent to guys for medical waivers and all those pieces, of course. But yeah, we just look at, we, we try to look at the CNS, we try to look at biomechanical deficiencies, but at the same time, I just feel like coaches right now need to be understanding of the fact that they're probably doing too much. You need to put blinders on to a point and say, right now, if your job depended on it, what are the three things you would utilize? Because it's always easier to add, 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 add. But like right now, I just think more coaches need to strip away because it's taking away from their coaching skill. They're getting too reliant on so many aspects of this technology where they need to be married appropriately. Yeah, that's good. I think, uh, I forget the name of the author, but the book Unplugged, they talk about that in there, that training is... You've got to you've got to know your body. Yeah. But if you're always looking at a at a piece of data or device for how you should train that day, then you lose that connection. But and we'll, to that point, like we use a Brower. There are certain times where NFL guys they they do not want that Brower to come out because uh, one of them defensive lineman every time instead of just comparing where he's at from the beginning of the offseason to later on once we've gone, he just keeps comparing himself to where he was at the combine. And I said, man, like. 
you can't do that. You're six, seven years into the league now. You have bumps in like what you lack now in physiological capacities that you maybe had then. Granted, you want to manage that gap. You've made up for in technical savvy and know-how from being a veteran. You know, that's just like, that's no different than boxing. Like, you know, I had the opportunity to meet and work with Roy Jones and Winky Wright and what have you. And, and these guys, like, even if they can't hit as hard as they use during certain parts of their career, they knew how to recognize counterpunching opportunities. Coaches need to understand counterpunching opportunities as opposed to just being offensive with more and more and more and more and more. You've got to balance that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I like that. You talk a lot about in your book about buy-in. Um, my experience the last few years is I've seen coaches, strength coaches specifically, having trouble with head coach buy-in. So getting your athletes to buy into a program is one thing. Um, how would you speak to somebody that maybe they need to, to work on getting their head coach to buy into their program and to what they're doing? How would you, yeah, and this how is, would you address that? This yeah. has been an interesting problem and a failure on my part in that somehow we have a community. So we can read a book by a Navy SEAL, and none of us are Navy SEALs, but we recognize that we can apply those lessons. We can read a book, as you alluded to, by David Epstein. Now, none of us do, like many people listening right now are probably not just solely professional authors, and they'll take things from that. Yet what I've struggled with is, my book, while it talks about athlete buy-in, is about buy-in in totality. Mm. So I, I'm trying to figure out this divide where when I go speak for corporations or tactical settings, they understand that we're talking about systemic buy-in with that book because they can extrapolate. Coaches tend to think, well, hey, I read your book, but how does this work for superiors or colleagues? And what's the same? Mm-hmm. Buy-in is trust plus commitment. And building trust takes a combination of skilled interpersonal communication, which includes great listening, which includes learning how to relate to others, which includes how to, uh, knowing how to navigate power dynamics. And of course, those are all the precedent set precedent for how we do that with other folks. So, you know, when you think about buy-in, if we had to bastardize it and consolidate it to three things or really four, I always say research, relate, reframe, and reinforce So research is if you want to gain buy-in or the trust of somebody ethically and responsibly, you need to listen and understand what their pain points are, what their fears, what their struggles, what their tendencies are. You need to relate. You need to be able to help them understand whether that's understand that you were listening by summarizing what they say to ensure that you're on the same page or even relating by showing some level of vulnerability, meaning you're not getting your own ego into it, right? You're able to step back and let them kind of win the battle so you can win the war. And those are inappropriate analogies, but because it's not a battle or a war, it should be a mutual partnership. And then you want to reframe. Like every time you talk to them now, once you know more about their wants, needs, drives, desires, fears, and what have you, and they know a little bit more about where you're going, that you're listening, reframing is now you've got to change your language, Coach Mabe, so that everything you speak to coincides with what they value most. And then you constantly have to, the final R, reinforce that. You ha- It's a long-term partnership. Yeah, it takes a while. And that's the key. That's why in the book I say one of the biggest elements that people struggle with buying is time. It's not going to happen on your time. It's not. That's a relationship. It's a negotiation, and it's a partnership. You know, you're not going to make somebody fall in or out of love with you overnight, real love, right? You're not going to make uh, – It's that's almost like saying, hey, if I get my athletes under the squat rack or what have you, I expect instantaneous results. Now – Sure. Somebody, if they're being contrarian, can say, well, you do. You get enhanced motor unit recruitment right away. They know what I mean. You, know, you don't get direct, non-ambiguous transfer to sport immediately. 
you have to look at buy-in the same way. Yeah, and I like that. Uh, I think, you know, I think for younger coaches that, or even some older ones too, I think the coach is going to buy into you as a person before they buy into whatever you got. Hundred percent. And so I think just being, you know, like you said, just having those skills, relatable skills of how to just have a just normal relationship first. Kind of let that. I, I see coaches that get so caught up in the program part of it. They try to assert themselves. Yeah, and versus just hey, just who cares about the program right now? Just worry about making this connection and this relationship first. Once you get that trust, then you can get the commitment, like you just said. But so. unfortunately, it's hard to be surprised that that's what coaches do because that's what they've been taught to. Almost, it's almost become fetishized. Like coaches try to assert their superiority or credibility through their programming methods, yeah. right? Like that. I mean, how growing up, that's all I ever heard about is: Are you a West Side guy? Or are you an Olympic guy? Are you this guy? Again, think about the divides we've talked about just on here. Uh, West Side guy, Olympic guy. Do you use tech? Do you not? Right? Like in terms of people have the what kind of tech? Are you private sector, collegiate, pro, high school, whatever? I don't go into doctors or dentist office and hear people be like, you an orthopedic surgeon, you a brain surgeon, you a wisdom tooth guy or a molar guy. And like our field seeks divides and seeks to assert itself so much that it digs itself a hole. And no wonder we don't get along with many superiors or colleagues because we're so worried about proving our value instead of providing value. Mm -hmm. And that leads us astray. Very true. Um, Another, I got another little topic for you here. I've got a bunch of questions for Keep you. Keep firing. Coach. You're doing great. So one thing, I mean, uh, just I'm so in, interested and intrigued. You're an author, a best-selling author. What was that process like writing that book? Hated it. <laughs> what was bad? What was it? Uh, well, I mean, I'm a kinetic individual. Yeah. I, I think best while moving or while interacting. So I tend to think more clearly through conversation, through self-reflection, through movement, all those things. Uh, and, and trying to write a book where it's, you're, you're just stationary. You have to sit and you have to, and it's silent and you don't want to read other people's stuff because it could influence your work too much. But at the same time, you have to do some due diligence. Like there was no playbook that was passed down to me on how to do that. I started writing it, you know, probably, I, I can't even, I would probably, it came out in 2017. I probably started writing it maybe in 2011, 2012. And that went through, then, you know, you change jobs and you move or you have different things going on in your life. And at the time you don't even know it's going to be a book. You're just putting something down. And then I got married in between. We had moved again. And so, yeah. And, and I finally, I think actually what encourage me or the thing I actually have to give credit for actually getting it written is I had left a job in Los Angeles. It just wasn't a good fit for my wife anymore. We had turned down a job in the NFL a year prior and it wasn't because we didn't want it. It just timing. We had already accepted this other position. And I only say that because if I had taken that job, I really don't think I would have finished the book when I did. And so it was only when I was like, all right, we're going out on our own. And this is all up to us. Like, there's no safety net. I'm not a trust fund baby. My wife's not a trust fund baby. I need to get this done. So I went on my own, started, you know, I was coaching athletes from five in the morning to to 11 at night based on this place that we had to rent out when they'd let us use the gym. And it was just so, it was awkward for me because I had gone from now coaching all these pro athletes and doing this to now even having to do some elements of personal training again until we made the decision of where we were going to move. And then I would write from basically 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. and then get up and do it again. And I had to invest a lot of money 
in because we self-publish. So now you're looking at what it costs to do an ed- hire an editor, what it costs to hire a graphic designer for the cover, all these things. And you know, I'm a strength coach, not having made much money. So it's equal parts rewarding, harrowing, frustrating, enlightening. You learn a lot about yourself. I always tell coaches my best advice for coaches now, because I hate when people are like, get your degree, get an internship, like tell them something real put skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Like do something where the consequences are very, very, very real. Learn as much about yourself as you can, metaphorically taste your own blood, and then you'll start to know what you can do. Because you know, one thing that that book helped me do is it helped me move from what was essentially early on, I'd criticize so much of what I saw. And I realized that that was because I identify with somebody that was, oh, I'm in the trenches, I'm doing this. And so much of this stuff out there is crap. But then I had never tried to communicate something to a broader audience. And when you do that, when you sit down and actually put pen to paper and try to elucidate and like make it clear, like, this is what I know. Here's how I can make it super easy to understand while also not trying to please everybody. You know, you rewrite your book like six times. The first time I wrote it, it was probably too academic-y. And then it's funny because now in its current rendition, people are like, well, you know, like, yeah, it's a good starting point. And then there's other people that think it's it's too technical. So that's when you learn you'll also never make anybody happy. But I would say the last thing I would say is this. Yeah. I'm glad I did it because you're haunted by it. We would go out to, if we went out to a movie or something like that, I would feel when I got out of that movie, I would feel like a failure because I knew this book was this thing I had to do. I had to do. And so I'm, I'm just glad I did it because you'll know if, if, if something's really something you're supposed to do, it'll haunt you every waking moment, every day. And then to a degree, you've got to block it out. I mean, the amount of people that said, I could have written this and I could have done that. I'm like, well, then go do it. Go write your book. Yeah, that's you not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's rewarding, but it takes years off your life. Any possibilities of another book? Yeah. You know, and I get asked that a lot. So the first thing we did is, um, and I'm going to steal this from Robert Cialdini, because Robert Cialdini wrote two books that were 20 years plus uh, apart from one another. And they asked him why, and he said, I'm into planting oak trees, not shrubs. So, you know, I knew, and we had offers to do like a conscious coaching for sport coaches, conscious coaching for military, conscious coaching for corporations. We could have milked that. That was not something I wanted to do. And thankfully, because the audience was uh, discerning, they knew that despite the fact that I talk about strength and conditioning and, and all that, that it's, it could spread. And that's where the book kind of took off in the business world. There will probably be another book at some point in time, but I'll, I'll, and I'm telling you this first, won't sell like the last one did. People will be very divided on it because of the topic, which I'm not going to talk about here, but the topic would be one that uh, would be polarizing and not intentionally. It's just because sometimes people don't want to hear the truth and the way that they want to hear it. Cause I get asked that a lot too. Donnie is like, well, how do you feel knowing that you, there's no way your second book could ever measure up to your first? And I'm like, why does it have to? Like, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. I self published something. Clearly I'm not worried about book sales. It's a blessing from God that the book is translated into six languages and over a hundred thousand copies sold. But I, I thought my mom would read it and my brother would burn it. Now we did do a follow up to the book. I wanted to explore what it was like making things in different mediums. So the book came out in 2017. In 2018, I made Bought In, which is an online course that was made for people who wanted to go deeper and be more immersive. So I like that, yeah, that's good. Yeah, we did that because I think too often people get caught up thinking they need to write another book. I'm more in line, we live in a digital age, 
right? You talked about how technology is pervasive in training. Well, it's also pervasive in education. It would behoove me just to think that a book is the only way I can reach people. So we have more than 500 coaches uh, in that online course, and that's only a year old uh, or a year and a half old. So yeah, we're just we're taking our time with it, and I want to plant an oak tree when it when and if it is time. I don't want to plant a shrub. Well, I mean, I, I like that. I like that analogy, the oak tree. I think you know, you need to keep doing what you're doing. You're definitely making an impact and influence. There's always going to be people that that are going to hate or not like or criticize, but typically those are the ones that aren't doing much. They don't do anything because if they're just, really happy, they don't criticize. And so those are the ones you just got to you gotta just be silent with those guys and just keep moving. So keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Likewise. Yes, sir. Um, talking a little – I want to talk a little social media. Sure. So social media is not only here to stay, it's not going away. Would you agree? 100%. We have a whole podcast on my about that. We, Yeah, yeah it's never going anywhere. Anywhere. What would your advice be? So this is even recent for me. This is a current kind of experience I've had. I run into coaches today like, oh, you know, I, I don't, I'm, social media, that's not for me. That's just, that stuff's bad. I'm not going to get on that and blah, 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 blah. So you got that side of it, right? But then you go all the way to this other extreme and you start talking about us as professionals, younger coaches posting things on there that's really sometimes a bad look. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it can influence or have big impacts on the perception of our role as strength coaches. What advice would you give to a younger strength coach that maybe they post all the time? But then what about over here, this other extreme of like these older coaches or some coaches like, you know, I'm not fooling with social media. Yeah. I mean, simply put, social media is your resume to the world. So that's that's my advice to people is put out, it should be led by values, not vanity. And uh, listen, I know what, if I wanted to have a million followers, it would be a bunch of pictures leveraging, pictures and videos leveraging, uh, you know, my athletes notoriety, doing all kinds of crazy drills or half naked people. Like that's not what I'm about. So if you follow me, uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's about, you know, I, I posted a lot of things over the years. We do some training, but now a lot of it is coaching leadership. It is about my life, communication, what have you. Um, I, I think it is funny when you say older coaches that when I was coming up, and it was an athlete that actually challenged me to get on social media. Richie Incognito um, had told me at this time I didn't even have a Twitter because people had said, everybody I learned under, and I was a hardcore convert of this, is if you're on social media, you're not a real coach. That's what I, that's what I grew up being kind of told. And so I adhered to that. And then I remember one of my athletes, Richie, had said one time when the group was having a water break, he goes, why aren't you on Twitter? Instagram wasn't really a- around at this point. And I said, real coaches aren't on social media. And he goes, oh, that's funny. He goes, because you educate your interns and you tell us why we're doing certain things. Like, you don't think there's anybody else in the world that could benefit from your insight? And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm not a know-it-all. You know what I mean? So, like, I'm sure there is, but, like, that's not how I want to come across. And he goes, I think you got your audience wrong, brother. He's like, if you think that there's people out there and you're not doing what you can to help them, uh, then, you know, you, you need to redefine what it means to be a coach in so many words. And so it was him of all people. And people can say what they want about his mental health struggles. He's one of the best. He's just a great person. He is. And people don't know anything other than what they read in the tabloids or whatever. But, um, you know, that challenged me. So I started looking at what can I change? Because that's kind of like saying I'm not going to post or whatever and it's bad for you is like living near the beach and you hear there's drownings that happen occasionally. So you're not going to teach your kids how to swim. You just rather move away from the water. Like no matter what social net, we, we live in a time of digital networks 
and social networks and all those things. And I also heard coaches say, well, I'm too busy. Elon Musk tweets. Richard Branson tweets. So really, here's the thing, Donnie. Our field's excuses, 99% of them are masked or thinly veiled insecurities. People will come up with it, whatever reason they want to say, but it's imposter phenomenon. They they don't want to be judged. They don't want to be criticized. That's the key. They don't want to be criticized. 100%. They don't want to be criticized. They think they'll lose their job because if they say something stupid or look inept and like whatever, they don't want to be criticized. It's, it all goes back to skin in the game. It all goes back to skin in the game. The younger coaches, I already said it, value is not vanity. It's your resume to the world. You can never take those things back because um, even if you remove a post, that's a digital catalog that will live in the, you know, internet ether forever don't overthink this stuff you know like i used to think that if i posted it had to be something that would like wow you know the thought leaders of our field and now i just do me and if you like it great if you don't whatever i had a conversation you know to, to piggyback on what you're saying this was just recently with a coach great coach very knowledgeable uh had a great has a great job doing a wonderful uh job with the athletes he's got and so i asked him about this are you, you know, if I if I go to Google you or whatever, wait, not on LinkedIn, not on Twitter, not Instagram, nothing. Dangerous. And so I said, but then hold on. So then we we were having this conversation about career path and getting promoted and move. I said today your resume is online. People aren't looking at your piece of paper. I'm not saying you got to go crazy on it, but you need to get your you need to get your stuff dialed in. You need to get you need to have an online presence that's current. And it gives people a snapshot of what kind of coach you are. You, that's a powerful platform. You have control, and you can paint that picture. You need to do it in a, in, a, in with integrity, obviously. But you're you're missing the game. Yeah, I mean, and, and you make a great point. And our mutual friend Ron McKeefrey talked about that. If you don't have, if you don't own your own digital real estate, you're leaving it up to somebody else to draw what conclusions they might. And that's that's just the truth, you know. It is. It, it like, and and it doesn't matter. People need to get it through their heads that it doesn't matter what you like in this world. It matters what you can adapt to. Yeah. Brass tacks. It just is the facts. Right. Like, so if all of a sudden, like, and, and I think people get it twisted. They say social media is the downfall of strength and conditioning. Have you ever Googled strength coach fired or strength coach ethics or strength coach viral? You look at those things. Google, I would argue, is a lot more powerful than social media. And strength coaches do a pretty good job of embarrassing themselves through some of the things that have gone on through the years. And you're talking about a lot of unethical. And listen, I'm not one. I'm not perfect. Right. Like everybody. But if you Google strength and conditioning and you go deep enough, you see a lot of Google searches and a lot of index results that come up of Google's or coaches doing some really questionable stuff. So even if social media didn't exist, like so I always tell people social media didn't create more idiots. If anything, it actually puts a spotlight on the ones that you should avoid, yeah. right? But like, good way to look at it, yeah. you know. And and before, listen, like that's to that's to say before social media, there weren't people doing unethical or ridiculous things. During like you know during colonialism, like people would would uh, try to advertise themselves to be something. Charlatans go throughout the history of time. You know the Wild West. Somebody would sell colder ice than somebody else, and so I just I love it when there's always something to blame. You're usually to blame, and that's collective. That's myself too. You have to take a hard look, which is why I'm so visible. Is I say, well, I'm not going to tell other people to do things I'm not doing, and my stuff's not perfect, and it's not for everybody. But you know what? You'll know who I am and what I stand for. Yeah, and I think too. Coach Brett, I think if you're going to stay relevant and stay current with the profession, 
you've got to at some point have an online presence. Other professions, if you don't stay current, you don't move up. Yeah. You don't advance. You don't stay. You don't stay relatable. And I mean, and how much more? And I'm not saying again. I know I, I like what you're saying because just because there's some bad stuff out there doesn't mean you got to join the bad stuff. No. Just you know? do what you want to do. And I think the key to that is you got to be authentic. And I think that you need to have the right motive of of why you're doing. It. I mean, I think I know when I first started doing some of that, I would struggle with this kind of pool of like being accused and judged. So you're accurate in that of being a self promoter. Mm -hmm. So I would struggle with that. So, you know what? People can just go ahead and misjudge me or or whatever that I'm self promoting, but you know what? I'm actually, I enjoy what I'm doing and I love trying to help people. And at the end of the day, you can call it what you want. Yeah. Let's be real clear. What's wrong with, if if you feel like you're doing something that has value and you're doing it ethically, what's wrong with trying to share that with other people, right? Like that, that, it's so, there's so much uh, doublespeak there because think of everything, right? Like, do these people that say this, they work for teams or organizations that have a budget and that budget is typically allocated through alumni or some other donations or it's privately funded by the team owner. But at the end of the day, if anybody wants something to be uh, allocated within a budget, mm-hmm. if somebody wants to be able to utilize resources that upgrade their department, how do they think they get that money? through promotion and fundraising, right? So when people say, well, I'm not a self-promoter, I'm not this and that. No, but you're reaping the benefits of other people that are doing promotion and marketing for you. And so it's one thing if you're a self-promoter that's doing things that are unethical or you're trying to present yourself as a know-it-all, but no matter what, you're marketing to the world regardless. The people that say, I don't promote myself and I'm not on social media are marketing themselves as these old school people that don't Mar- their marketing, even by default of not, the absence of a feature is still a feature. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. And so they really don't, they now. really don't understand. Like when I walk through the airport at in Atlanta, I see, and I think it's down here, it's a, it's a cancer research hospital uh, for in Austin. And it advertises what they're doing from a cancer research standpoint. Coach, that's advertising, right? Now, do I look at that and think, well, that's, that's that's not uh, that's not sound ethics or that's inappropriate. If they were doing it for the right reasons, they wouldn't need to advertise. Wrong. Like public relations, if if people want to increase the use of metro transit in New York, guess what? They need a public relations campaign to tell people why. If you want to draw attention to a helpful product, a new form of technology in the weight room that might benefit your athletes, those are all forms of marketing, impression management, and and all those things. So. I just think it's funny when coaches say that they don't want to self-promote or market, yet they engage in those behaviors every day. Uh, They try to make their programs appealing to their athletes. By being in coaching, here's a bomb, you're in marketing by default. You're taking a message, trying to distill it in a meaningful way to an audience. Yeah, Dan Pink's got a book, uh, Daniel Pink called. Oh, that book, is that changed my whole thought process is that we're all in sales, whether you like it or not. You may not say you're a salesman, but you're in sales no, and, and because of the human relations side piece of it. And you got to build influence and you got to persuade. Be honest with yourself, yeah. right? And that's a lot of what my doctoral work is now is on influence, persuasion, power dynamics. Because what I learned is writing great programs was not enough. It is not enough because you... It doesn't matter how well written that program is if the athlete doesn't put out the the type of effort that you want from it or if somebody organizationally is stifling what you're trying to do because of their agendas, right? So most people in professional sport organizations or elite sport, just like with elite organizations around the world, 
are not finding a lack of success because they're not writing the right programs or they don't have the right base ingredients. It's because of power dynamics and agendas of other people that have ulterior motives. If you don't understand those things, how are you going to combat them? What would be some simple just steps and advice? Somebody's listening. We just kind of, they want to try a little social media. They've never done it. They've shied away from it. Now they're realizing that, hey, I need to kind of start doing some of this. What would be some simple advice you give to somebody who's just starting out? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, and this is where I don't worry about the self-promotion anymore. Look at the resources we put out. We have, like, I have a whole course that addresses ethical behavior around this, and and it, it it kind of coincides with what we talked about earlier. If you're just starting off with social media, it's like same thing. If you're writing a book, write what you know, yeah. and don't follow the crowd. Put blinders on. I, there are tons of people that want me to just keep posting training videos and photos, like I did three, four, or five years ago, two years ago, like. I don't want to just do that anymore. Like how many more agility drills can you see? How many more squat? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I want, I wake up and there's things I feel moved or influenced by. And I want to talk about those things. So like be consistent is the other thing. I have people that have said, you know, I tried it. I did this. I thought I put helpful stuff out there and it's just not taking, I go, well, how long have you been doing it? Six months, right? Like it took me five years to even get, uh, any kind of following. When, when my book, Conscious Coaching, came out, I maybe had 5,000 people following me on Instagram and, you know, not much else. I didn't even have a, like a newsletter. I didn't have anything. And people quit right away. So just write what you know, be consistent, yeah, quit right. worrying about everybody else. Be and, authentic, yeah. Yeah, like, again, like, who are you? Like, if you can't, if I can look at that, the first 16 photos or posts I see should give me a clear indicator Fairly clear indicator of who you are. And you know what I found, Coach? The minute I quit worrying about all that stuff, the minute I quit worrying about pleasing everybody and wanting everybody to see me a certain way and whatever, I got more of a following and a loyal following, and it was a good following. And I got rid of the toxic people that just want to, you know what I mean? They're like... And it's relaxing. Like, so on my posts, like people can see my goofy side. People will see the serious side. People will learn about my son, my thoughts around coaching. And if you don't want to follow that, great. There's a million other accounts I mean, yeah, for I it. Think, I think people are drawn to mistakes we make, you know, because that's you, you're, you're vulnerable, but then also you're so relatable because there's a humility that comes to that, being able to acknowledge that, hey, I don't have all the answers. I made some mistakes. I like showing my imperfections far more now than I like. Yeah. I'll, I'd rather share advice. embarrassing stories and stuff. than That's good advice. Um, recently, kind of a, another little topic I think is interesting, but really uh, a very hot topic in strength conditioning, specifically in the college scene. Over the past, I would say, few years, we've definitely received some criticism from athletes not being trained properly. Uh, what are your thoughts on just certifications in regards to raising the bar professionally as well as just minimizing athlete risk? Yeah, I think so. Do you want me to attack that from the certification standpoint or what we can do to minimize athlete risk first and foremost? You know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on certification, but then, you know, I, well, let's hear your thoughts first because I got my thoughts too. So On the certification. Yeah, what's your thoughts? I, I think right now, transparently, our governing bodies could be doing more. I think they've gotten tone deaf. I do. And and I'm like, listen, I'm a paying member and I have my CSCS and my RSCC and all these other things. But I think that it's gotten a bit tone deaf to the field. Um, now, granted, like I'm biased, right? Like I, I'm putting information out there that is about the art of coaching and relationships and also dealing with burnout and financial management and things that real yeah, coaches are topics. struggling with. Yeah. And I've been told that that latter, that latter topic in particular wasn't relevant enough to get CEUs, 
which I thought was really interesting because we had more than 3,000 coaches per a third-party survey say that they deal with aspects of burnout, financial issues, student loan debt, uh, anxiety. They're not sure if they can stay in the field. And we were told point blank by a governing body that that you know, that just stuff wasn't, they didn't view it as relevant. Now, they try to kind of shield that with saying, well, what we're saying is it's not a part of our certification type uh, uh, information. I'm like, well, maybe it should be because we need to focus on allowing coaches to be able to actually have a sustainable career. Now, I want to keep it on topic with what you said. You talked about athlete safety, health, and all that. Because that's the end game. They're keeping what? them safe. Yeah, yeah well, 100%. But, like, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. As a coach, you can have a career that you are able to keep your athletes safe, but you're also able to see your family and make some money. Mm-hmm. You know, I always love it when people say it's like they act as if our profession has to be either or. You know, and that's like the first book I was ever given in the field was like first in, last out, which is basically a connotation of saying, like, in, in which it was given to me, like, unless you want to work obscene hours constantly and not have a life, you're not going to be successful. And there's a balance to those things. So I think that, you know, the way that we've treated, whether it's certification or whether uh, the way we've addressed issues within strength and conditioning in totality, uh, that has a reflection of what we've done with athlete health and safety. Like more people need to get involved as opposed to just speaking up. We have so many strength coaches out there that clamor for solutions. Yet what are they doing? What are they doing? That was the biggest point I had to check myself is I could complain about a lot of things and I used to, but until I started trying to put stuff out there, books, courses, podcasts, whatever, I realized that like, like quit complaining about the dark if you're not going to light a match. So I'm encouraging the answer to your question as direct as I can be. If you think you have solutions, get involved and getting involved does not say, does not entail you telling these governing bodies what they should do. Like whether you need to run for positions or you need to provide the resources or whatever, do it. Get in the trenches, yeah. I had to spend my own money to create all of my online courses. I had to spend my, nobody funded that. I don't get paid a salary. And like, so it troubles me when I have coaches. I mean, I saw it the other day on one of the message boards, somebody was complaining that we need licensing in our field, not certifications, but a licensure. But these people have been complaining about this for years. Okay, great. Then create a proposal that you know expands upon a curriculum or a path, and then let's figure out what that needs to be done, and then get the necessary people on board. Believe me, if if people can figure out how to shoot rockets into space that land themselves back down on that very pad, a group of strength coaches can figure out how to improve some things. But they just expect the governing bodies to do it for them. So I think I think it's multifactorial. I think it's insidious because our governing bodies for sure can be tone deaf to some things that need to be improved and that you don't always feel supported as a strength coach. At least I don't. I felt like the minute I got out of the team setting, like I do feel like our governing bodies are very much geared towards just team and there needs to be more unification of what we're doing right like other fields have unions other fields like we yeah, talked about I agree with that NFLPA yeah. they have a players association meanwhile we're all fighting each other and then we have organizations that we wonder why there's so many issues right and then more coaches just need to learn more about like I said business ethics strategies get involved spend your own money or quit complaining and find a way to make it work yeah no I like I like all that I also feel like you know the the athlete risk i think that there's and i know this is a bit you know you talk about this too but you talk you look at the culture and the the power structures in different teams and i think you know you look at the 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 amount of pay that some of our coaches are getting in some of the revenue sports is getting very high Mm -hmm. which with comes that comes a lot of authority and weight right and so i think that you know you look at who's being hired how they're being hired look at hiring practices 
And are they just good buddies mm-hmm. that you're bringing in? Most of the time they are. Yeah, and so I think I think it I think it's going to be more just from my experience in the field than just a certification. Oh, without it. Yeah, be, that's... they they got to be unified like you said there's there's definitely a stronger unity needed, but then there's those other pieces too. Well, I mean, your colleagues are part of it, so that's why when I created that online course valued, yeah. that was the goal is to provide coaches with an alternate MBA of sorts because your resumes and your connections aren't enough. So we wanted to create a resource that bridged fields and gender gaps and uh, age gaps. We got Donnell Boucher, Coach Hootie, uh, Andy McCloy. We got people in collegiate, pro, private, whatever, a bunch of other coaches. A financial manager or a financial advisor provided resources, a lawyer. And we tried putting that together because what we're trying to say collectively is nobody's going to do it for you. You know what I mean? Like it shouldn't be the expectation that these improvements in our field are going to be done for us. You've got to be a part of that, you being a collective us, right? But then the issue, Coach Maven, what I challenge you on is even when these resources are available, but what we've learned is most coaches don't want to take to them because they feel selfish. They feel guilty. What We've heard, well, you know, yeah, like I have trouble with this. I have trouble with that. I feel stuck. I'm burnt out or I'm not sure what to do or it's a toxic organization and I don't, I can't leave because I got a family. But then it's like, well, hey, there's a resource that can help you. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, I just feel like uh, I shouldn't do it. Like if I'm in it for the right reasons, I shouldn't be focused on these things. I just need to give more. And I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, keep pouring from an empty cup. See how that goes. Or, yeah, the, the, the oxygen masks have fallen from the plane. Don't put yours on and see how many people you can help. So I think this martyrdom of strength and conditioning needs to go away, too. Yeah, and that's another topic. I, I mean, how many coaches today get coaching themselves? Very few because they don't want to pay for it. Yeah, and it's that. I just, how can, I always, I kind of have this saying, how can the coach, the coaches be uncoachable, you know? If we're going to coach and teach, uh, we've got to be great learners ourselves, you know? And I think, you know, uh, emptying your cup, that's a that's a definitely a martial arts term or, or saying that's, that's definitely relevant. Um, good stuff, coach. Where... Do you see our profession going? What's the next big thing? Do you see something on the horizon? Have you thought about this at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is. I think if coaches don't invest in learning more about the psychosocial of aspects of influence, communication, interpersonal skills, and also coaches don't upskill their, their own knowledge of the business side of this field, I think you're going to be left behind. So when I say the business, it's everything I'm talking about, whether it's understanding social media, negotiating contracts, uh, proper networking, all the things that kind of provide you with intangibles and more control over your own career. And then the social side of what we do and and really diving deeper and, and understanding that the art of coaching is every bit a science as well. And uh, yeah, so I think those are two areas that, and I'm totally right. I'm totally fine being wrong. I'll say that, you know, but at least I look at it this way. What allows me to sleep is I'm planting a flag, you know, but I I just find it hard to think that in our field, we are going to, I mean, coaching by definition is social in nature. So why aren't we investing more in understanding social science? But it, it goes hand in hand with what you just said, Coach Mabe. Most people not getting coaching themselves because we all suffer from some element of Dunning-Kruger, of thinking we're better at it than we really are, or most people just don't change until they change is thrust upon them. It's just like the athlete that won't listen to what you, uh, he keeps pulling his hamstring and you tell him to do something and he doesn't do it. So he keeps pulling his hamstring. Uh, and then eventually it's like, there's going to be a tipping point where maybe they're going to listen to you or they're going to phase out. Same thing will happen in our field. Habits are so hard to break, especially, uh, not only lifestyle, but work habits. Cause you've always done it that way. 
Yeah, what do you feel like has been the hardest habit for you to overcome? Something that you knew was toxic or or harmful or like just kind of like uh, you were stuck and you couldn't get over it for a while and then you just realized, no, the way I looked at that was completely wrong. Yeah, like was was there something you were a little bit hard-nosed or stubborn about? Yeah, I mean, I think probably similar to a lot of coaches, I like to work mm-hmm. and just taking vacations, taking time away. Um, you know, it's something I've been doing, I think, the past four or five years. I'll take the first part of January and just kind of reset and just do some stuff, whether it's uh, take days off or go through a cleanse or something. But just, I think, making time for me yeah, and just making sure I'm good. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I think that that has been, this past year, I've, I think I've done more to try to take care of my body and just be in a better place physically and mentally than I've ever done. So What'd you do specifically? I've been, you know, I've had, just from playing ball, some old injuries kind of bothered me still. But just in the past, just try to ignore that. But finally, be like, you know what, I need to, if I'm going to be a strength coach and I'm going to teach people how to be in better shape and be better mentally, physically, I might want to do that myself. Mm. And so it's inconvenience at times. And, you know, it, you you don't have to put yourself in those situations where you're just always stressed out and not taking care of yourself. So I think that's been a struggle for me, but something I've definitely gotten better at here later in the, the last few years. So. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, I appreciate you it's sharing not been, And it's not been easy. And, I, you know, I can still fall back into some of those, but but it's something I'm going to keep working at for sure. Yeah. And I'm definitely aware of it. So. Sure. Um. So you have a course, we've, we've kind of talked about it, called Valued. And for the most part, strength coaches, kind of we've been talking about here, overworked and underpaid. We have a lot of young coaches getting into the profession, but we also have some really good ones are getting out. Yeah. They're just done. Right. right? They're burned out. Um, low pay, long hours. They don't have the support. I, th- I like how you said that earlier. What can we do, coach, I mean, as just as an, across the market, uh, and I think even collegiately specifically, um, to increase our value—not just how we're perceived, but monetarily—how can we? What are some things we can do to do that so we can have a better quality of life? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you. It's obviously hard to consolidate what is ten hours of course material because we walk through all of that step by step by step in the online course. <laughs> but just a sample of some of the topics we discuss within that is one: you have to understand that. You have to make your job and what you actually do a lot more complex than meets the eye. A lot of coaches get wrapped up just in being a strength coach, right? And Donnell Boucher talks about this a great deal in the course. He talks about ways that you know you have to bring value to other departments. You want to make so you want to make your job so description true. as complex as possible so that you have advocates at every level. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a huge problem where pe- it's great that people identify with being a strength coach. And listen, like I have a beard. I'm from Nebraska. I like lifting weights. I get it. Like we have, it's an awesome thing, but you're more than that. And I, I, I liken it to, I'm a big music guy. And so I, pardon me if people don't like these analogies, but I look at people like Dr. Dre and Jay-Z and these people, like they might've started off as DJs or rappers relative to whichever one you're discussing. But then look, Jay-Z is the first billionaire really in, in uh, hip hop and one of the only ones in music. Um, and then Dr. Dre went on to orchestrate a deal with Apple. Uh, you know, you look at, I always tell people, cause people get cheeky with me sometimes saying, are you a coach or a speaker? And I say both. And I, you know, I just make sure to remind them that Steve Jobs didn't go to his grave building MacBooks. Like career evolution is not only natural, it should be encouraged. 
So that's great that there are some coaches that just want to spend the rest of their life coaching eight, nine, 10 groups a day, the rest of their life every day until they're 70, 80 years old. That's awesome. Like a part of me wanted to do that for a while too. Now I've learned I like coaching, but I also like managing and I like leading and I like doing other, I like having my hands on a lot of things. It makes me better range, right? Going back to the very beginning of this. So we teach coaches how to do that. We give them exact samples, uh, whether they're in team or private or what have you of how they can do these things, lateral strategies. And then we also walk them through how they can communicate and ethically build a brand in a way that is not gimmicky, not salesy, not is, uh, or, and that is true to who they truly are. Mm. So we walk them through brand strategies and guides. Um, and, and I'd say most importantly, We teach them about how to identify, uh, we give what's called an opportunity matrix. So this opportunity matrix is inevitably coaches are going to be faced with a wide range of opportunities, paths they could take. How do they evaluate which one is really right for them? So they're slowing down. So we offer an opportunity matrix. There's nothing like this in the field. And then we give them a full, a full, a full, (laughs) good Lord, a full on burnout guide. So a lot of people think that burnout, I'll give you a sample is for people that aren't committed or in something for the right reasons. Over 50 years of literature. Now, mind you, Coach Mabe, our field has really been around as a profession for about 60 or some odd years, whether you, whether it's Alvin Roy or Boyd Epley or whatever. I'm not talking about how long people have participated in physical culture, right? I'm talking about how long strength and conditioning was a recognized field, maybe about 60 years. There is over 50 years alone on burnout literature that shows it is actually not people that are mentally weak or uncommitted or unsure. Burnout occurs most in vocations such as uh, surgeons, nurses, members of tactical communities, um, human resources, people that tend to give their all and are very service and servant-based centered. So the most committed are actually the most likely to burn out. But it's funny because coaches feel ashamed saying they're burnt out because they feel like they're not in it for the right reasons because that's what we've told coaches. So we go through step by step, not only what the research shows with that, but how to identify stages of burnout. So if you're currently in a position where you feel stuck or is toxic, how you can really identify it and then actual strategies because it's not just leave the job. It's not uh, just, oh, try to seek, try to go on vacation because if you're burnout and you go on vacation, you're going to come back to that same environment. All these things that we've been taught have been classic strategies of distancing yourself, <coughs> excuse me, are not really what you want to do. So we give people a full-on guide for it. So it really is full-on from getting the job, advancing within the job, or securing your future. That's everything that the course walks through. But you've got to look at those areas if you want to take steps to the right direction. Yeah, I love that. I think that uh, the way I, I, you used a, a word um, that I, I kind of use the word similar to you, but it's uh, reinvent. Yeah. And I really do. I feel like over my career, I can look at tangible points or, or, or periods of time where I've done different things outside of being a strength coach within my profession that's helped assist me to develop skills in other areas that's not only not only uh, piqued my interest, but has actually refreshed me in my career. Well, and again, think of what you just said, right? Things outside of strength and conditioning made you a better strength coach. When our athletes come into the weight room, by and large, Coach Mabe, are they doing sports-specific movements? Are they doing things that directly relate to sport or look like sport in the yeah, weight room? so different, yeah. Right. But we know that it improves their ability to perform All in day. sport. Yeah. But then again, do you see the hilarity? Coaches don't, they don't do, they think the only way to be a good coach is by coaching. Mm-hmm. No. 
There's indirect methods to become a better coach. That's all I'm encouraging people to understand. And we provide resources that help them do that. So for me, it's been exhausting, I'll be honest, the last three years to try to convince coaches that they're doing the same things they're telling their athletes not to do. And not only that, they're getting angry yeah. about it, you know? It's true. Yeah, it's, yeah, they're not taking their own advice. It's ironic. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you do for professional development, personally? How do you stay sharp? Coach? Yeah, well, one is putting myself out there more. So, you know, I used to just, I the guy, I'd read a book a week, I'd do this, I'd do that, and then I realized that that's great to consume information, but to turn it around and have to teach it is a completely another ball That's game. so true. So I'm yeah. big, like while everybody else right now is kind of talking about how many books they read a year, I'm going the opposite way. I'm trying to read fewer books and do more with them. So that has been the benefit, I think, of the biggest kind of growth for me in the past three years is after I'm done with a resource, whether that's a book or research article or what have you, that either has to get... Uh, turned in and adapted into something that fits with a presentation, uh, freebie. We give out tons of freebie resources on artofcoaching.com. Um, but I, I haven't learned from that unless I've done it because that's great if I'm highlighting it and writing. But I think, again, creating has been a huge piece for me. No, I like that. I think that um, I think when you're talking, to, I remember I took martial arts for years, and I'll never forget my instructor told me one time, and it, it, the light bulb came on. He goes, you can come and I can teach you every night. He says, but if you really want to get good at this, you need to start teaching what you know. Yeah. And I did, Coach. I started my own class. It's awesome. Uh, this was in Boulder, Colorado. He would teach in Littleton, which was a 45-minute drive. So I would take from him once a, a week. And then I started my own class in Boulder. And I got it up to about seven or eight people. And actually, you know, at the time, I think my highest-ranking belt, I got somebody up to purple belt. I didn't really know if it was working one night, uh, after a couple years, I left my instructor's class, and the students are. They were they were like, "How are you getting good so fast?" I go, "You're just I'm just doing what you're doing." I said, "Oh no, you know what? I'm actually teaching." Yeah, teaching so is the highest form of learning. So when he would teach me something, I would have to go to apply it to different sizes, different genders, and my teaching style improved. My thought process of how I analyzed it, because he talks about there's three views when you learn. In martial arts, there's if we're working together, you're doing a technique on me. So that's one way you learn you're doing. Number two, I'm receiving it from you. Yep. And then the third view is that I'm watching you guys do it. Right. And, and that was the impetus behind doing like we do these two day workshops now called the apprenticeship, where it's that. I realized that I was going around and speaking, giving a lot of 60, 90 minute keynotes, what have you. But then I'd still get the same questions again and again and again. So I'm like, all right, I'm either doing a really poor job of communicating this or it's just not the right environment and what have you. And, it, you know, it's it's interesting. Now we run events that are 10% PowerPoint, 90% interactive. And, you know, coaches have to take their own – they have to engage. They have to get involved. They have to get up and do role-playing and improv stuff and, and video breakdowns. And it is – I mean, teaching is the highest form of learning. So that's what I focus on in my professional development. I also seek – uh, I, I go to people outside of our profession because, again, most of the issues our profession faces have already been dealt with in other fields and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, I pay. I spend a lot more money, to be honest. And, and it's not that I – listen, I have a kid. I fund my own business, right? And uh, I live a pretty 
pretty simple life. Like I'm not rolling in it. I maybe make $2 a book from every book sold on Amazon. That book cost me $25,000 to write. I'm being fully transparent. Each of those courses cost $25,000 to create. Imagine that, putting that on your credit card, being scared out of your mind because you're creating something that's completely dependent on you that hadn't even been created yet, but I had to secure the resources for the people that did the filming and all those things. Mm -hmm. And then it took me eight to 12 months to build each course, in one case, two years. So the point is, is uh, I almost blacked out there for a moment because I'm trying to remember where we were at. But doing all these things that there were real consequences if I didn't apply and didn't reflect and all that, like, helped me tremendously. And I just think that people need to up the stakes. I, oh, that's where it is. You got to invest. So, like, most coaches will say, I don't have the money to do this. None of us, you're never going to have enough money. You're never going to have enough money or time. What I look at is what I don't have is time or money to waste. So, I started looking at, on average, I was spending, let's say, $3,500 a year going to certain conferences, uh, flights, hotels, food admission fee. And I started looking at like, a lot of these have just become redundant. A lot of them, they were just networking vacations where people barely even went to the talks. You know, they, it just seemed like nobody was going. And so I'm like, where can I reinvest this money elsewhere? So I think coaches, when they say, oh, I don't have $500 for this or 300 for that. Yes, you do. Um, that's usually the cup, uh, like the cost of a cup of coffee, a $3 cup of coffee a day for six months right? Or less than that. And so I think people, you're going to spend that money anyway, reevaluate because so much is free coach. So much is free. Now when people say, I don't have the money for X, I wonder what they're spending it on. Cause think about it. Like if you can get so much education for free now, why can't you afford the 1% of it that isn't free? You know, because even when I made $10,000 as a GA, I remember one time I saved up enough to go to an $800 clinic and it, that clinic was crazy. It was great because it gave me more ideas. It was worth sixteen hundred to me. But coaches just gotta quit being scared and making excuses. And the way I like to say it, if you won't bet on yourself, why would anybody else bet on you? Right. You can't find two hundred bucks or twenty bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, there's so many resources. You don't have to have a big budget to do that. So um, I totally agree, and it's definitely a, a, a passion of mine. So I'm fired up about it. A lot of this hits close to home because it's what we're trying to change. So I know I'm rambling, but you know it is what it is. One last fun question as we kind of get to the end here. If we were rocking with Brett B in a car or whatever, you got your playlist. What would we see on the playlist, Coach? Oh, yeah. So it's public <laughs> on Spotify. You can check it. So one, I'm a big hip-hop fan, like true, true lyrics. So I knew I'm a, that about you. I'm I, like not, I like Nas, Eminem, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, you know, uh, like – uh, like I'm big on on older and uh, and like Notorious B.I.G. I'm also really big on uh, just some classics: Bobby Darin, Frank Sinatra, Jim Croce. My dad used to listen to that stuff all the time, uh, you know. But I listen to a wide variety. It just depends what situation you're catching me in. Now, lately, actually, what I've been training to, and I know you didn't ask this question. I used to train exclusively to like hip hop, rock, and what have you. Now, if anything, I'm I'm doing more like uh, no lyrics. Kind of these like uh, chill, I think you would call it like lounge music. It's yeah. just this chill, ambient, constant tempo, and it's very low key. So I think they call it like on Pandora, it's like chill house. Mm-hmm. And because I notice that so much of what I'm doing puts my nervous system at a 10, whether yeah. it's speaking, podcast, whatever. So you don't want to do that while you're training. No. You need to bring it down, right. and down regularly. I didn't realize that until a couple years ago. I was just like, I'm way more fatigued from my training than I should be. And there were certain times where, like, I love lifting heavy, but, like, I just didn't feel like I had the, the capacity 
not like I could will it out. Like your body just didn't want any of that. So I, I've started being more mindful of how to keep myself on this thin line between sympathetic and parasympathetic because yeah. otherwise I'm always rocking it to 10. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you even look at athletes today, you got to find an outlet. You can't just always be on. And I was. Just, you're, you're just drained. So. Listen to me now. I'm still on 10. <laughs> That's right. Um, coach, as we close up here, uh, just – I know you mentioned it. You've got an apprenticeship coming up here soon in Atlanta. Yep. Just quick little snip. Uh, that You were talking to me about that today. It sounds so amazing. Sure, yeah. I mean, you talked about with certifications. Like, I just don't – I don't know right now that I believe in the idea of certification of this idea that you're an expert after coming to some for two days. So we call it an apprenticeship to allude to – You're learning. It's constantly. a process, yeah. right? Yeah. So highly interactive, two-day, full-on about power dynamics, social skills, being a better communicator, what the research says about being an effective leader. And uh, it's really the only thing of its kind in strength and conditioning and coaching right now And that we do improv, film breakdown, small group discussions – uh, tons of different things and it's got the full like the first social skill based evaluation for coaches uh, we've had physical therapists members of the FBI strength coaches athletic directors uh, we're doing a couple in services for teams but these are open to anybody male female 19 year old 85 year old whatever if you want to learn how to be a better communicator and, and thus a leader come and get nasty it sounds great coach I definitely uh, look forward to hear more about that if the audience wants to connect with you, follow you. If they don't know where you're at, what's the easiest way to find you? Coach? Easiest straight up is just artofcoaching.com. Art Everything of is there. Podcast, courses, website, newsletter, artofcoaching.com. You can find it all. That's awesome. Well, uh, coach Brett, you are the man. Uh, we absolutely love having you in Austin. Likewise, uh, coach. You're dear to us. You've definitely had an influence and impact on us as a staff. And we look forward to working more with you in the future. And we appreciate all you're doing for all the professionals out there. Keep making an impact, Coach. We appreciate you. Love you guys. All right, we love you too. We're out of here. This is the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm Donnie Mabe. And who's with me today? Brett Bartholomew. Hook them. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.